Welcome to a super special episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020, featuring our first ever guest. Allow me to introduce you to Peggy Kleinplatz. Peggy is a clinical researcher and professor at the University of Ottawa with appointments in the Faculty of Medicine, the School of Public Health, the Faculty of Education, and the Faculty of Social Sciences. She's also the director of the Sex and Couples Therapy Training. She's a clinical sexologist, board certified in sex education, and as a diplomat and supervisor of sex therapy. She is director of the Optimal Sexual Experiences Research Team at the University of Ottawa, and has a particular interest in sexual health in the elderly, disabled, and marginalized populations. She was awarded the Prix d'Excellence in 2000 for her teaching of human sexuality. In 2015, she received the Professional Standard of Excellence Award from the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, ASECT. Her clinical work focuses on eroticism and transformation. Her research, writing, teaching, and clinical work have been intended to challenge, expand, and diversify the field of sex therapy. She has edited four books and is co-author with Dana Maynard of the forthcoming book, Magnificent Sex. Okay, that's the official bio. It's super impressive, but she is even more impressive as a human being with the rare characteristic of having a heart as big as her brain, and her brain is very, very big. I think you get to hear both her big brain and her big heart in the conversation we had. I was really excited for her and Amelia to meet, and I think the conversation that happened shows you why I was so excited about that. One more thing before we get started. Sometimes people ask what place sexual pleasure has in feminism, in burnout conversations, even in baseline survival, which is what our podcast is about. And the answer is, in order to find our way to sexual pleasure, we have to create a context that allows our brains to interpret the world as a safe, fun, sexy, pleasurable place. And that's a place that's the opposite of a context that facilitates burnout, exhaustion, overwhelm, and human giver syndrome. If you create a space for erotic pleasure in your life, that's the process of reducing the space for burnout and isolation in your life. And that's important. That's important. But also, the more comfortable you are around topics of sexuality, the more helpful you'll be when someone discloses to you an experience of sexual harassment or assault. And as we know, burnout is not just about self-care. It's about all of us caring for each other. The more comfortable we feel understanding and talking about sex, the better we can show up for each other. So, with no further ado, meet Peggy. So Peggy, what you just said was that there is a relationship between magnificent sex, how people are coping with the coronavirus, and our book Burnout, and it's on page 74. Your book is amazing, and... Page 74 of your book has been incredibly useful, not only to me, but to every client and student I've worked with, at the very least, those who are women. And it's where you talk about human giver syndrome. And you say that for some people, only meaning in life comes from being pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others. Yeah. And I'm looking at how some people are trying to deal with coronavirus where, of course, they're in the middle of a stress cycle they can't get out of. You're talking about how some women are trained to deal with stress in ways that causes burnout. And I read this book and I was thinking, well, wait a minute. This is also what stands in the way of people being sexually authentic. One of the ways that we get in our own way is by living inside a box such that we can never be ourselves as people or as lovers. That makes sense. I'm so glad. <laughs> and how is that the coronavirus? Is it because women are taking on the caretaking role and feeling like they need to donate blood and homeschool their children and still work full time and also do all the cooking? Well, at least here right now in Canada, pretty much everybody is trapped. And it means that no one can do any of the things that makes them feel like they're fulfilling a role that they would ordinarily need to fulfill. And people are tearing their hair out saying, how can I be more useful? How can I be more helpful? We're all trapped. 
it's not just that there's a virus that's out to get us, it's that we feel helpless because we can't fulfill the roles we normally need to fulfill in order to feel useful at least. So the stress is killing us literally and figuratively. Yeah, definitely one of the things I think a lot of people are struggling with is they're stripped of a sense of meaning and purpose. They feel disconnected from the thing that gives them, you know, the something larger. Yes, Um, and you're having identified it so cleanly in that book is really helpful to at least all the women that I've talked to since I read the book. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for writing Magnificent Sex. So can you, for Amelia, talk about how human giver syndrome, the overlap you see it having with people who have magnificent sex versus the people who haven't yet accessed that in their lives? It's okay if I start at the other end for just a moment. Yeah, absolutely. We know that there are certain qualities that are found pretty well universally in all people, men, women, gay, straight, kinky, vanilla, able-bodied, disabled, who are having magnificent sex. Among these qualities is that they're able to be fully in the moment. They're able to connect fully in the moment within and with each other. And they're free of pretension. They're able to be authentic, genuine, and transparent in the moment. Those qualities are incompatible with trying to be something that you're not with trying to fulfill a role. So you're gonna have to give up trying to fulfill a role if you wanna be in a place where you then are enabled to experience optimal erotic intimacy. This is Amelia, and the only thing I can think right now is those are the exact same qualities that make a performer really compelling. Amelia, can I tell Ah. you, when I saw Peggy talk this past June, she quoted Abraham Maslow, who said that there are many paths to heaven, and one of them is sex, and one of them is music. Yeah. Okay. I get it now. Okay. Okay, good. You know, when we were studying the literature, because as all good little scientists, we first did review literature, and we thought, okay, who writes about peak experience? Well, Maslow did. Yeah. Frankel wrote about meaning in life. But who talks about peak experience? And there was some stuff in the sports literature from coaches talking about how to get individuals to run further, run faster. Um, Lots of peak performance literature. Mm -hmm. But all of it was about how to get individuals to perform better, except for one article we found from a symphony conductor. Yeah. Which made me think of you right away. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Which talked about how to get an entire orchestra to perform together in unison, to create a harmony rather than a cacophony. And that's difficult to do. But there was only one such article in the entire music literature. Really? Really. Uh, Until you write one. Well, now I've got to. (laughs) I think probably, so there's this sense among conductors that if you have to talk about it, then you just don't get it right? That if you're going to be a great conductor and you're going to make these experiences, this peak experience happen, that you need to intuit your way into authenticity and being present in the moment and non-judgmental and really true to the music in the moment. And that you just have to like feel your way towards that. And if you have to talk about it, that kind of spoils the magic of it. There's really an anti-academic perspective among conductors that once you explain it, it's not really true anymore. It makes it really hard to learn about conducting because there's this kind of boys club where they feel like if you don't just understand it intuitively, then you aren't a good conductor. But it's a teachable skill. Here, here. Does that sound familiar at all, Peggy? Uh, absolutely. Your sister is speaking our language right? in the world of sexology. Wow. Cool. Well, I, I think there are a lot of us so-called sex geeks who have an understanding of what's going on, but people don't take us seriously because we sound scientific. I think that's one of your many gifts. Now I'm speaking to Dr. Emily Nagoski, that you make things that sound scientific actually accessible to regular people. Now on the other end of it, we have like the Harlequin romances that a lot of lay people are reading, which make it sound as if this is also something one can't grasp. And people act as if this is not something that actually can be understood if you do understand it, if you do talk about it, well, you've somehow put it to shame. Hmm. And, And even the very sort of sexual script that shows up in romance novels, 
is based on the idea that if you have to talk about it, you're doing it wrong. Like you have to, if you have to ask your partner what they want and like, you have already failed. If you don't Correct. just know. Ironically means that they've got their own formula. Don't right. talk about it. Right. Yeah. And that's a formula that's more or less doomed, certainly in the long run. Yeah. Just swoon in some well-timed way. Yeah. <laughs> like you just want your partner to know when it's right to kiss you and when it's right to move to take off some clothes and it shouldn't be effortful. It should just be spontaneous and it can just happen. Okay. In conducting, that is the goal, but you get to that goal by talking about it completely explicitly in rehearsal. So that in performance, so, but I mean, what people don't understand about rehearsal is that a rehearsal is a performance over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Like every time you practice, you're performing but you're just interrupting the performance. And so musicians spend a lot more time rehearsing than they do performing. So the process of being a musician is the process of rehearsal where you talk about things and you explain things and you give each other feedback. So that in the moment that you're on stage, it seems like, oh, this just magically happened. But everybody on stage knows, no, no, no. This happened because we spent a lot of time picking it apart and talking to each other about it. And frankly, that part was just as fun for us as the moment on stage. You're making my heart beat faster. Right? <laughs> I knew you guys would get along. <laughs> that's, that's, as it turns out, exactly the way extraordinary lovers work. So as we were studying magnificent sex, the people that we interviewed who'd been having years and years, or in some cases, decades of magnificent sex were people we came to call the extraordinary lovers. And for them, the most erotic moments of their lives are about improvised if rehearsed dancing. Yeah. And after years and years of being willing to make mistakes and giggle at their mistakes and saying, well, if I've learned anything, it's from everyone. Even the bad lovers, even the people with whom I had a lousy lay, okay, I was able to laugh at it and say, okay, I learned what not to do again. Yeah. And if you can't laugh at yourself and you can't learn from every experience, good, bad, and middling, then you're never going to get to where you want to be. So you cannot create the conditions in which magic will necessarily occur, but you can create the conditions in which you've enabled it to occur. Yeah, it's possible. Wow, cool. Right? So I have a question. I want to know how you define magnificence when it comes to sex. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. That was really the first research question that we asked 15 years ago. We decided that we needed to do the kind of research that would answer that question. And if you're a psychologist, then almost all research is done on first-year undergrad students who are taking intro yes. psych because they're captives. They have to do the research. Right. Yeah. And as a team, we said, if we want to know what makes sex really memorable, wonderful, whatever you want to call it. Don't ask a 19-year-old. Yeah. So <laughs> the question was, who are we going to ask in order to find the answer? Yeah. And we thought, okay, we need to find people who have experience. Mm -hmm. And we thought, okay, we'll put out ads looking for people who describe themselves as having really magnificent sex. And we thought, who would know about this? thought, okay, let's try really old people. <laughs> Good. Because if they've been together, and that was one of our inclusion criteria, that they've been together for 25, 30 years or more, then if they're still having and continue to have better and better erotic intimacy, they must be doing something that we can learn from. And so rather than thinking of old married people as the way they're usually thought of, you know, the people we would target for ads for Viagra or KY Jelly, we right. thought, okay, let's ask the people who are having really amazing sex what makes it magnificent. And who else should we ask? We thought, hmm, part of what we thought kept people from ever finding the answer was the box that most people live in. So we decided to advertise for sexual minority group members who could tell us What's it like for you? We figured people who had to get outside the box because they weren't in the box yeah, might have box. better answers. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. They would have had to become creators. Yeah. And so we asked the old married people, whether gay, straight, whatever, 
and we ask the LGBTQ, kinky, whatever, consensually non-monogamous people. Mm -hmm. So people from 22 to 82. And their answers looked identical. And I can tell you more about that later. But first, I'm going to answer your question as to what that was. Okay. It turned out that there were eight major components of magnificent sex or optimal erotic experiences. Mm -hmm. And they included being fully embodied in the moment, completely focused, not just like low level mindfulness being present, but a high level. So utterly absorbed in the moment that you wouldn't notice if someone dropped an atomic bomb on. Uh-huh, yeah. And at the same time, being connected, merging, utterly aligned with another human being, the stuff that normally sex therapists don't talk about, we don't talk like poets. The Magnificent Lovers did. They talked about two hearts that beat as one. They spoke in the language of poets and songwriters and musicians. Oh, and by the way, we asked them all because they kept on using musical metaphors about what kind of music they listened to during sex because they also always mentioned music. And so we asked everybody and their answers were all over the map. For some people, it was Brahms. Yeah. And for others, it was... Isn't that your favorite composer? Yeah. He is the composer of my favorite piece of music, yeah. What's your favorite? Um, the second movement of the Brahms Requiem is my, like, you have to hear it every couple of months. I have to go back and listen to it again. Always makes me cry, like, intense love, love Brahms. And that particular yeah. is just killer. It's not sexy, but it is heartbreaking and, like, explains to me exactly what the world is really like. It's incredibly powerful. <laughs> yes. And what I hear you talking about is the willingness to open up one's whole being to experience whatever might emerge. Yeah. Which turns out to be an important factor as well. Right. So we had people mentioning nine inch nails. Yeah. um, Everything all over the map. And music turned out to be an important feature in what allowed people to be fully absorbed in the moment and fully connected with each other. These turn out to be the two major skills as well as the two major ingredients of magnificent sex. Among the respondents, how many were professional musicians? None. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Because musicians have a different, professional musicians, highly trained, where you do your like, you know, whatever it is, 10,000 hours, you're an expert musician, have different relationships with music than regular people. I don't know any musicians who include music in their peak sexual experiences. It's not recreational. Music is not as recreational for professional musicians as it is for regular people. So that's interesting. So we have uh, two key attributes of magnificent sex. One is being fully present in the moment, like deeply atom bomb present. And the second one was the sense of connection, was it? Connection, alignment, yeah. merger. Yeah. Two right. people truly two becoming as one. So mm-hmm. you can't tell where your skin ends and the other person's begins. But there are other components, including authenticity, mm-hmm. vulnerability, risk taking. And as, as you well know, in health psychology, in sexual health, we mostly talk about risk-taking as a bad thing that we have to ward off. Right. Unwanted pregnancies, STIs, sexual assault. This is another kind of risk-taking. This is the risk-taking where it feels as if two people are jumping off a cliff together, entrusting their bodies and souls to one another, being emotionally vulnerable and naked, using sexuality as a vehicle for personal growth and development. And it's scary to really show yourself authentically to another human being. So that kind of risk-taking. All the research, and just recently I noticed this beautiful, fine distinction you make between authenticity and vulnerability, that authenticity is this kind of courage to be fully who you are, whereas vulnerability is the courage to be seen by someone else as who you fully are. Did I get that right? You got that exactly right. It's as if half the parts of optimal erotic experience are about oneself. And 
it's hard enough to be connected within your body if you're doing meditation or mindfulness or you're in the middle of a yoga class. But the hard part is also being true to yourself, honest, authentic, present, embodied, while connected to another human being. So authenticity alone is hard enough. But sharing that with another person leaves you vulnerable, leaves you exposed, which can be scary. Yeah, because so, what about judgment? People are, that's judgment is a real threat to a lot of people. Yeah, that's true. It, it means choosing very carefully partners with whom you can afford to make mistakes and screw up and share your deepest, darkest fantasies and have the partner welcome you and nourish you and accept you, whether or not they feel like living all of those fantasies out. But knowing that sharing your innermost self, you'll be just safe enough mm-hmm. in your partner's embrace. So that's become our motto, just safe enough. Nice. We, on the podcast, Amelia and I often talk about our difference in embodiment. I have always been like sort of even overwhelmed by my body's signals. And Amelia didn't know she had any until like maybe 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Do you think there's a relationship between being able to notice your body's signals and the capacity to have magnificent, extraordinary sex? Yes. And I'm going to say that the connection is in how we relate within and with the other via empathy. It turns out that there's a meta factor that helps to bring about optimal erotic intimacy, and that's the capacity for empathic communication. So here I am back to talking to a conductor and a sex expert, and that's one of the things that I think must draw you together as identical twins. This must be something that's there literally in your genes and in the way the two of you connect. I don't know. I think our our strongest skill in communication as twins is that we can understand each other talk while we're brushing our teeth. I think she means in terms of (laughs) what we have chosen to do with our lives. Amelia and I do often recognize that I got a master's degree in counseling. She got a master's degree in conducting. We both got master's degrees in how to listen and have feelings. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It may not be about what we have in common so much as what our family was missing. (laughs) Yeah. The skills we have to learn. How did you get there? Most people learn them in their, you know, childhood. How did we get there? How did we notice there was something missing? Oh. Yeah. The thing about me is I'd never know any of this stuff in advance. I figure it out in retrospect because I don't even know that I have signals being offered to me. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. It all happens in retrospect. I mean, I've said many times, like, I learned how to be a person on the podium before I learned how to do any of it in real life, how to be authentic, how to be vulnerable, how to be myself, how to connect fully with another human being. I learned that in front of a choir before I learned it with my husband. But at some point, didn't you have to listen to the signals from within in order to be able to do that on the podium? Uh, Yes, I did. But I didn't start learning until after ignoring those signals landed me in the hospital. And then I was like, maybe I should be paying attention to those signals. And it made me a better conductor. And it made me a better wife. And it made me a better person in the world. I'm impressed. (laughs) It was not easy. A lot of people go through life without ever getting to where you are. That might be true. That could be true. That's a very optimistic interpretation. That's a very, and which is why I'm like, that can't be true. Because I'm, uh, but I feel like most people must be more like Emily, where they always kind of know that, like, they were notice when they're hungry and they notice when they have to pee. And, like, they basically have the ability to notice what's happening in their bodies. I sort of feel like that's pretty standard. No? Um, this may be a digression or it may not. You tell me. But I'll tell you that my experience as a therapist. It's been pretty obvious that most people lose that ability that we're all born with by the time they're about five. It's part of our birthright to feel fully, to feel readily, to feel without having to think, without worry about judgment, 
And by the time you're old enough to speak, stop crying as much and you start using words to express yourself. And this is, you know, very connected to which culture you come from, but certainly if you're the average North American, you learn by the time you're two or three or four or at the latest five to just do as you're told most of the time, follow other people's instructions and cues rather than to follow what's coming from within, which means you learn to ignore much of what's happening in your body most of the time. Yeah, that feels true. (laughs) And the gateway to undoing that you're saying is empathy. I'm saying you can't get to be a magnificent lover without empathic communication. Mm -hmm. I'm also saying that that's something that we often have to teach people to reclaim. Mm. If it's there as part of our birthright, then it's something worth reclaiming. And so in the group therapy that we're now doing, one of the things that we're trying to teach people is to reclaim empathic communication through touch, through their senses, as viscerally as possible to go back to something they had when they were very young, something very primitive, yeah, and to reclaim that capacity for paying enough attention to what's happening within you so that you can also afford to pay attention to what's happening viscerally to something happening within another person. And as much stigma as there is against things that are sort of sexy and sexual, I think there's as much stigma against stuff that's not intellectual stuff that's not cognitive, that when you talk about things that are visceral or primitive, that gets dismissed in general by a lot of just the population and the community at large, because it seems like, well, that can't be real because you can't measure it or because it doesn't sound objective. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, people always argue with me until I ask them, do you have a child? If they have a child, it's really easy. Then I say, do you ever hold your baby? If if they've got a little baby, it's great. Do you ever hold your baby just because your baby wants to be held? Yeah. And some people will say, no. You know, first you check their diaper to see if they're wet, and then you check to see if they're hungry, and then you check to see if, if they need to be burped. And then if that's not it, then you know that they're just crying for attention. You put them back down. Oh, I don't think I want to have sex with any of those people. No, no. Oh, man. And then there are people who will say, yeah, sometimes babies just love to be held and you pick them up and they coo at you and you coo back at them. And, you know, you play little games with them, even if they can't yet speak. And you see the joy on those parents' faces as they're describing their babies. Right. And then if they don't have one, I say, do you have a cat or a dog? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you ever rub your pet's belly for yeah. your enjoyment? Not for the sake of the animal, just for the joy that you get out of watching your cat purr. Yeah. We'll say, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's definitely a divide in the world over whether joy is a valid goal or if it's a waste of energy. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've actually been thinking about, because I say I teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. I get challenged a lot on what joy even is. And I'm rewriting chapter nine of come as you are to make it more helpful. Basically, how do you get to joy? The real big barrier between women and joy maybe especially like embodied erotic joy is the grief, the huge well of grief they have to move through and release. That is what they've been carrying around in response to decades of being told that they are broken and inadequate and ugly and should be ashamed of themselves. Yeah. It's not the damage that those messages have done per se. It is the sort of painful healing process, that grief and mourning that, we all have to go through in order to be able to get to the joy. So it, it, and it's not even that joy is the destination we're aiming for. It's that in the process of grieving, letting go, what's left is joy that we're already there. We just need to like melt the wall that lives inside us. Oh, 
I'm not sure that's true, but I might still <laughs> be wrestling with my grief. So, you know. <laughs> wow. Part of my, like, my thinking about that is actually reading the stories, the accounts of the extraordinary lovers, of how they got to a place where for them, their sexual encounters aren't just slot A into tab B or slot tab A into <laughs> slot B. Anatomy is not my strength, <laughs> but is rather really a way for them to deepen their expression of their personhood, their own access to understanding who they are as people, who their partner is and what this relationship is. Yeah. And in keeping with what you just said about chapter nine, I mean, we asked everybody and we didn't even know how to word the question, you know, what did you do to start having great sex or what did you have to learn or how did you get there? What did you do in order for it to happen for the first time? Yeah. And they all said, I had to overcome everything I'd ever learned about sex growing up yeah. in order to get to the place where I was capable of magnificent sex. There's all this stuff you have to let go of. And, you know, you mentioned grief. I'm thinking of, of the people that we interviewed who were survivors of cancer or survivors of child sexual abuse, or who had some kind of disability, or who were old, which in our society automatically means you aren't the poster child for great sex. All the changes in your body that take place as you grow older. And it was in overcoming everything they'd ever had been taught that they finally acquired maturity to be capable of what was within all along. Which is why you can't ask a 19-year-old about magnificent sex. Because yeah. I don't know any 19-year-olds who have overcome any of that. And I teach 19-year-olds. I know, it's scary. Yeah. Because yeah. they're exposed to, you know, great sex is all about the right tips and tricks and right. techniques. And yeah. maybe toy. Right. And it's not. Not to like mention having the right body shape. Yeah. And size and color. Hair yeah. and quantity. Yeah. I remember talking with this one extraordinary lover who was old and had had cancer, and she was cancer free at that point, and who talked about having been a very attractive young woman and always self conscious, always knowing that people were looking at her and how difficult that made it to just be in her body when she was young and beautiful. And then she had a mastectomy and how shockingly liberating it was for her to feel that now she knew that when she was in bed with her partners, they were in bed with her, not because she was young and beautiful and perfectly symmetrical because she sure as hell wasn't symmetrical anymore. But inside she'd opened up and it made her an extraordinary lover. That is some hardcore positive reappraisal. Yeah. Yeah. That's if I live to be a thousand, one of the great blessings of my life will be having interviewed these amazing individuals who, regardless of their educational background or their socioeconomic status, were all articulate. Yeah. And all opened their their minds and their hearts and their spirits and spoke with such eloquence it was mind-blowing just to talk to these people yeah there's i yeah that's an amazing story and for someone to be able to articulate it so clearly and understand it in themselves that, that dynamic is what was going on in their lives that is that's extraordinary in itself i wonder if there's a connection between that kind of contemplative self-reflective clarity of understanding that leads to the kind of ability to be open and vulnerable and authentic and brave in that way? I'm sure there is. I mean, the very fact of having to overcome everything you've ever learned requires yeah. a process of letting go. Yeah. And that was the first step in becoming the kind of people who were magnificent lovers. My co-author and I, she was a grad student of mine at the time, uh, then Dana Menard, now Dr. Dana Menard, would do all the interviews together. And I would keep playfully coming on to our participants and she'd say, you can't do that. You're a scientist. And I'd say, they know I'm kidding. They know I'm not really trying to pick them up. 
<laughs> I, I would be talking to some 82-year-old gay man who had been with his partner for 60 years. It was quite clear I wasn't his type. Yeah. But it was so enlivening for me to talk to people who were that fully in the moment and so mm-hmm. willing to share their wisdom and the glory of their experience. It was very cool. Yeah. Yeah, because how can you not have a compelling personality in the rest of your life if, if it's gone so far as to make you that fantastically comfortable with your intimate partner? Yeah. I feel, I feel so bad because I know you're both like very comfortable talking about the sex terms and things. And I'm like, people hire me to work with their children and I don't want to <laughs> have recordings of me saying sexy words. <laughs> So, I'm you sorry for being a little bit indirect, but like, you know what I mean. You have not said any sexy related, there's nothing anyone could cut out of context. Yes. be like, she's a person with sexuality. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not an accident. But you feel like why I think this research is so important, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like if there's any research that can be interpreted where if you just replace sex with music like all of this feels so true and so clear and like it ought to be a textbook that we give to you know conductors oh my god that would be amazing that really resonates for me there came a point in the research where we were wondering is what we're studying optimal erotic intimacy or is what we're studying optimal experience, peak experience in the way that Maslow talks about it. Are we talking about something that would apply to any kind of extraordinary moment in life? I think extraordinary moments are for almost all people are going to include other people. And as you say, a lot of this research is done on like, you know, running and golf and art and individual activities and the idea of having it be a mutual a shared experience is a it's harder to study logistically because studying multiple people at the same time is hard and studying people whether engaged in behaviors is hard and that's one of the reasons this stuff is not as well defined as like golf or ceramics because those things you can talk to a person about the thing they did and you don't have to take into account a big group so i think it might be sex and music and maybe a few other things like church dance ironically dance absolutely theater yeah yeah performing arts broadly how about that performing arts and uh, maybe sports team sports team sports to me it's fascinating that literature doesn't exist there's some literature about entrainment um and the experience of entrainment but it's not as far as i know i haven't read anything that directly connects entrainment to peak experience not baseball because in baseball everyone plays a different position a lot of people are stopped while just a few people are moving but sports where everyone's moving cooperating all together like rugby rugby yeah though those kinds of experiences Here's skating oh yeah. yeah yeah it's basically dance we kept on trying to interview Sally and Pelche who had just won in the Olympics representing Canada, because watching them on ice really seemed like the representation of what right. we were hearing in our interviews, and then they got divorced. We were uh, brokenhearted. Oh. Uh, See, I mean, think there can be domain specificity. I think they could be able to do it on the ice and not be able to do it in bed, just as like Amelia could do it on the podium, but not in her yeah. actual day-to-day life. She learned it first on the podium and has had to extrapolate from that skill. Yeah, and it, like the the ability to do that with an ensemble made me notice, and you giving me like piles of research that were like, hey, feeling your feelings is a real thing. And I was like, what? And just having that understanding that it was a possibility that I could have it elsewhere in my life. And I think possibly like if you can achieve that with like your ice skating partner, that doesn't mean that that's the same person you can achieve that with in other contexts, including sexy contexts. 
I think what for me, uh, Peggy, when you talk about the different pathways, some people get there sort of from their own intrapersonal development and it grows into a relationship. And some people begin in the relational connection and begin to be able to turn toward their own internal experience because of the relationship. Yes, there are different pathways towards the peak, but the peak is really extraordinary. And many different ways of getting there exist. And once you get there with or without the same partner, it does turn out that these are somewhat transferable skills. Yeah. So, for example, we asked people who had contacted us having seen our recruitment blurbs saying, well, I did have really great sex with my late partner. Can I participate in your study even though I'm now a widower? And we said, sure, we'd love to learn from you. And we'd Mm -hmm. be talking to some guy who was 80 years old who had been married to his wife for 50 years, who nursed her through long illness and was now living in a nursing home. And we didn't quite dare to ask the question, but is there life after death? Mm -hmm. And they would volunteer. Yeah, having experienced it with my wife, I'm now experiencing it with other women here in this nursing home, which was incredibly encouraging to us. Yeah, transferable skill. Yeah. There's hope for all of us. Benefiting other people because now they benefit from it. They learn from it too. Even if they never had before. That actually was a sort of narrative that struck me as there were some people who were like, you know, I was going along like regular and then I had this one partner who like cracked everything open. And now I can be that partner for other people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To me, that seems fairly mind blowing. Yeah, totally. Totally. So I... I love this book. I think it's super important and everyone on earth should read it. The idea of it being a conducting textbook makes a lot of sense to me in the Mm -hmm. same way that the extraordinary lovers would read like golf books, golfing books. Yeah. To the Zen of it. Yeah. The inner game of golf. The inner game of golf. I actually had a conducting teacher in my master's program that said, you know, this conducting class does not have a textbook, but if it did, it would be Zen in the Art of Archery and An Actor Prepares by Stanislavski. We've used those. Yeah, I bet. They're very transferable, those skills. And yes, I read both of them in the context of that class. It wasn't required, but when he said these would be the textbooks, of course I went to read them because I'm a nerd and that's what I do. They totally helped. Yeah. I I love it. I mean, as we were trying to figure out how do we take what we learned from the extraordinary lovers and create a therapeutic intervention based on their lessons. We went to Zen and the Art of Archery. We went to the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. We finally read what all the great lovers told us to read. Galway's The Inner Game of Golf and The Inner Game of Tennis. We read Stanislavski. We read all those things. We had to get outside the box of conventional psychotherapy and sex therapy. Yeah to apply the lessons from the extraordinary lovers to people who had miserable sex lives. And it worked. Wow. That's I mean, the most common sexual problem is low desire or no desire, low frequency or no frequency. And mostly therapy for this problem or problems is aimed towards the identified patient who's usually identified as the woman, the wife. Mm-hmm who's got something wrong with her so that she doesn't want sex. Maybe the problem is that she's got good judgment (laughs) and she's not having the kind of sex that anyone with good judgment would want. So for us, you know, the cure for low desire is desirable sex. Yeah. Yeah. But if we had to figure out how are we going to teach other people those things, we went to exactly the same things that you were taught in your conducting class yeah, to come up with a quote therapy approach yeah, that would help people find sex worth wanting. Yeah. Therapeutic intervention. Be a human being as much as possible. Here, here. Which is so actually not that easy to do because the world keeps telling you, don't you dare be a human being. You weak, stupid jerk. Human beings are unworthy of love and yeah that's a that's a hard message to get over so which explains why the unlearning of all the negative messages was the the hurdle for so many of your subjects 
interviewees. And we're back at, especially if you're being told that you should spend your life being pretty happy, calm, generous, and attentive to needs of others all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How do you let that go? How do people like, and what I love in particular about the way you took the lessons from the extraordinary lovers and turned it into a therapeutic intervention is that you turned standard sex therapy inside out. You didn't start with the low desire. You started with the sex that they don't want. Like as, as I quote you saying all the time, tell me about this sex you don't want. <laughs> and they describe it and you're like, well, I wouldn't want that sex either. Yeah. No, no, yeah. No wonder. Oh, that's really funny. And it, yeah, the it, first time I said that in therapy, it was like, I wasn't thinking or I would have kept my mouth shut. Sure. Uh, therapists aren't supposed to be honest. Right. Well, I should sure. rephrase that. Wait, they aren't supposed to be revealing such thoughts. Yeah, that's a pretty intimate I statement to share with, with a client. Yeah. 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 But I said it in therapy without thinking much. You know, if they had just finished describing their sex lives and I said out loud, yeah, if if I rather like sex, but if I had the kind of sex you're describing, I wouldn't want it either. And their jaws dropped and then they started smiling. It's like that was so affirming for them to hear. It's so permission yeah. giving. Yeah, you're allowed yeah. to not want that sex. I said the S word. You did it. <laughs> Congratulations. So I've been, as I do the science revision, I've been steeped in the research and just sort of trapped in these ways of thinking about desire oh, that are clinical and how big problem low desire is, low desire, low desire. How are we going to fix all these women with low desire? And I keep like, and not one of them has made the leap from maybe the problem isn't lack of desire. The problem is a lack of pleasure. And maybe we need to stop talking about desire. Maybe desire doesn't matter. Maybe the point is, how can we, how can we help these people find a gateway to pleasure in their lives, yeah. not just in their beds? Yeah. So like when you talk about how kids don't want to eat their vegetables, the advice is not just like, all right, well, how am I going to teach you about how vegetables are super desirable? You put fucking cheese sauce on the vegetables. That's how you get kids to eat vegetables and gravy and butter. You make the vegetables themselves more desirable. No? Or, okay, I'm going to talk about my own kids for a second. When okay. my kids were little and I raised vegetarians, I'm a vegetarian, their favorite dinner was in late summer where I would just put out bowls of spinach, raspberries, blueberries, blackberries, cashew nuts, almonds, cherry tomatoes, chopped avocados, and said, tonight dinner is spinach salad. Make it any way you like. Yes. And each child got to make the perfect dinner with all this richness of color and flavor but it was exactly what that individual wanted. Yes. My experience was cheese sauce, but however gets the job done. <laughs> but the yeah. experience of choice that you're yes. kids like I got to make this thing for myself. It's mine. Yeah. I got to explore yeah. and experiment and make a decision about what I wanted on my plate. And it didn't have to be the same as other people's. And I didn't have to take anything I didn't want. And you don't have to do it the same way tomorrow. Right. Right. It seems so straightforward. And because we are shamed around sex in a way that we are not necessarily shamed around spinach salad, like if you put that array of sexual choices on the table, people, especially if there's anyone else around, will have all this trepidation about whether or not it's actually okay for them to choose the blueberries. Whether or not they're actually... Yes like too much avocado. No, no, you can't take that much avocado. There's something wrong with you if you want that much avocado. Or even to have any food on your plate at all. How greedy of you. Yeah, beware of desire. It's wanting too much. Yeah. yeah. So I, they, they put my blurb on the cover of your book. <laughs> your name and, and am... Menard's name are both on there. I don't know what made them think that putting my name on the cover was also a good idea. Oh, really, dear? Really, Emily? Really? Really? You're not like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of a big deal? 
you didn't like you weren't aware that you're kind of a big deal I, nothing that i do we are so honored by your incredibly kind blurb and putting that on our cover just it's the icing on the cake i need this book to change because the research has been it, it's honestly fairly frustrating for me to keep reading all this stuff especially with its increasing focus on physiological arousal and just be more aware of how your body is responding no matter what the stimulus is just be aware of how your body is responding and that's how you know you're turned on no like there's a place for awareness but i need what i need is greater clarity and precision of language which i think you can appreciate that they're not recognizing this difference between awareness of what's happening and a lack of judgment of what's happening because if you're aware of what's happening but it terrifies you or you hate it or you've been taught to ignore it or be afraid of it that's not good that's not going to make your sex life better it is the non-judgment that's the active ingredient learning to be a neutral observer of what's going on instead of a judgmental observer trying to shape your experience into some pre-existing script i don't know why this particular insight has not found its way to the literature but i feel like the optimal sexual experiences research is this giant like meteor landing in the middle of all that desire research just like thunk it's about the pleasure yeah it's the yeah. and it's not about a little bit of pleasure it's about not worrying if you're greedy and taking all the pleasure you can handle and then some and then some yes no judgments just Forget pleasure. I want ecstasy. Yeah. I want intense pleasure and lots of it. Do you see why I love her, Amelia? Oh, 100%. Totally, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good place for us to end on ecstasy and lots of it. Is there uh, anything else you would like people to know about the research and therapy that you lead? I'm just so honored that you've had me on your podcast. Thank you for all your kind words and your support. And thank you for telling the world about how to come as you are. And thank you both for teaching the world about burnout. I'm thrilled to have had the honor of speaking with both of you together. It was a delight for us. And I very much am interested in talking to my husband after he edits this and posts it online. Yeah. <laughs> what conversations we're gonna have. <laughs> I think it's gonna be pretty fun. Totally. Part was just as fun for us as the moment on stage. You're making my heart beat faster. Right? <laughs> I knew you guys would get along.